This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Welcome you to Unlearn and Rewild, where we explore radical ideas relating to earth renewal. Today we are speaking with Monique Michelle Verdan and Cherie Foytlin. Monique is a native daughter of Southeast Louisiana. Her intimate documentation of the Mississippi River Delta's indigenous Homa Nation exposes the complex interconnectedness of environment, economics, culture, climate, and change. Her photography has been exhibited nationally and internationally, and she released her first documentary film, My Louisiana Love, in 2012. Cherie is a Cherokee and Diné journalist and mother of six who lives in South Louisiana. She is the author of Spill It, The Truth About the Deepwater Horizon Oil Rig Explosion, and she has been a constant voice speaking up for the health and ecosystems of Gulf Coast communities across many forms of media. In 2011, she walked from New Orleans to Washington, D.C. to call for action to stop the BP drilling disaster. Hey. Hi, Monique. Hi, how are you? I'm really well, and I'm really excited to speak with you and Cherie, who will be joining us shortly. And I just wanted to take a moment and thank you so much for your film, My Louisiana Love. It was incredibly moving. Yeah, well, thank you for trying to amplify the story. I think the Gulf South and the big picture nationally, you know, we've had a lot of trauma and drama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All of the details and the data gets forgotten or just not told, you know, and that was the story of my Louisiana love. I wanted people to walk away from the film knowing how we got here and not just people outside of the region. I mean, even my own younger cousins you know, to make sense of what the last hundred years here in South Louisiana has given us, you know, that we've inherited this 
huge mess. And then also to, to connect that to this more international issue of climate challenges. I'm very proud of that work. And I feel like it, you know, especially for the Homa people of the Delta, you know, that there's been this cycle of displacement going back to the times of colonization and how my indigenous ancestors ended up at the ends of the earth, essentially, you know, when this, at the time, what was considered undesired swamplands, but for them, they were able to maintain their sovereignty there because they had everything they needed to survive. Um, and we're connected by this web of bayous and the Mississippi River Delta is one of the world's largest deltas. And I try to remind people that this is a power point for the planet. It's a major migratory flyway. The entire Gulf of Mexico ocean basin is dependent on our estuaries and our wetlands here. So it's a womb, <laughs> you know, it's America's womb. Of course, oil and gas has played a huge role in the modern destruction over the last 100 years, 80 years. Before it was oil and gas, it was plantation society. And we very much here in the South are still living with that kind of mentality of taking. Prior to that, it was clear-cutting our cypress forest. We should have cypress trees here that are thousands of years old, a thousand years old at least, and they just cut down all of our forest and and how that contributed to the changing of landscape and how we're no longer protected. I mean, our coastal forests are so important when it comes to cutting down the wind that hurricanes produce and slowing those violent storms down. And we just we don't have them anymore. They were already clear cut and now they're disappearing even more as our land, which was once more a fresh water, brackish water environment is now become totally singed by salt water because we've had thousands and thousands of miles of pipeline canals and exploration canals and the federal government has dredged these federal canals, not to mention the levying off of the Mississippi River, which has starved our wetlands from the fresh water that they need to survive. So it's just this combination of man's mismanagement, all in the name of progress and economic development and what have you. But the side effects are something that even though they were warned about the consequences, it was ignored. What took Mother Nature 5,000 years to create, being the Mississippi River Delta, it's taken man 80 years to screw up to a point where we're not really sure what we can do to restore. We don't have enough time, money, or resources to really ever be able to restore this environment to what it once was, it's really kind of like, okay, well, how can we adapt to allow it to be somewhat sustainable going into the future? But there's a lot of questions around that. Absolutely. And I was so amazed by the images of the cypress forest and what they once were and the graveyards of stumps coming out of the water. Uh, To see that for me just drove it home that there are no winners. So with your land in the state of advanced degradation and with the tentacles of extractive industry at every level, where are your efforts and dreams focused? 
what would you say is the best case scenario moving forward? And how do you feel about having to simply adapt at this point? Best case scenario, (laughs) the mantra is to reconnect to the river, to the wetlands. That's a huge part of the puzzle. It's also very controversial, though, especially because most of our people down here, if they're not working directly for oil and gas, they are working as commercial fishermen. A huge percentage of the nation's seafood is coming from South Louisiana. So we've been adapting ever since 1927 when they put in this federal levy system along the Mississippi. And so what once was more of a fresh brackish environment has now become saltwater. So it's a lot easier for our fishermen to go out not so far from their homes to be able to harvest the bounty of our estuaries. But scientists say that what will happen is that there'll be this overabundance of production and then it will totally collapse. And I, I think that we're in that time now where, you know, yeah, our fisheries, even post BP, we're still the BP drilling disaster. We're still producing a ton of seafood. So the fishermen are very much against this idea of freshwater and sediment diversions that would be taking water from the Mississippi River and redirecting it back out into the wetlands. So, you know, 41% of the United States is drained by the Mississippi River, but then it's just a channel out into the Gulf of Mexico. So you have all of these tributaries that are coming in, and then there's just one distributary. And so we have a coastal master plan, which the master plan sounds bad, especially with our, like, as I was saying, plantation mentality, you know, to kind of call it that, but that's what they call it is the coastal master plan. And so, you know, Louisiana has recognized that we have this huge problem. We have rapid land loss. We're losing land at one of the fastest rates on the planet. So this is one of the solutions is to bring this water and the sediment back into the wetlands. But it's also they have to be very strategic in where that water goes. And so there's a lot of fishermen like in my community here in St. Bernard. We have a historic it's actually one of the first freshwater diversions that ever was put on the Mississippi and contributed to killing off all of these oyster beds and So people are up in arms because they know it's going to change what we know now. But the scientists say, well, it's going to change one way or another. There's a lot of conflict. We have been enduring storms. You know, Katrina in 2005 is the storm that everyone hears about. But there were many storms before, and we've had numerous storms since that don't always get the news and people are just not aware And just as Katrina was not the first or the last, the BP drilling disaster was not the first oil spill, and there's been numerous since. Oh, cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Where you gonna run to? All on that day. Will I run to the rock? Please hide me and run to the rock. Please hide me and run to the rock. Please hide me, Lord, all on them day. But the rock cried out, 
Oil and gas is in the pocket of our politicians, so we don't have a whole lot of official governmental leaders who will stand up, and hopefully that's changing. Recently, a kind of a historic lawsuit was filed by our levy boards against 99 oil and gas companies because when the oil and gas companies are, are given their permits, part of the contract is that they have to do mitigation. And part of that is to backfill all of these canals that they dredge through our pristine wetlands. And they never did that. That's why we have these what some call saltwater daggers, because they dredge these canals and then the saltwater is just able to come in far into what was once fresh environments. And so this lawsuit is trying to really hold the oil and gas companies accountable and say, hey, you need to restore what you've destroyed. It was really a revolutionary lawsuit. And our governor at the time, Bobby Jindal, he was a tyrant. And it's really great that he's out now. So hopefully the lawsuit that he was trying to get thrown out of the courts now actually has life again. And it's not only the levy board, but also some of the parishes here in South Louisiana. And so parishes are like counties in other parts of, in other states. And so so parishes are trying to also get on board and, you know, say, hey, we're not going to be able to protect our communities if you guys don't, you know, carry part of this burden because you are directly responsible. We're already starting to adapt in ways. One way is that you go to the ends of the roads here in South Louisiana and everyone's houses are raised 17 feet off of the ground. But you know, like in my community of St. Bernard. So we have a federal canal called the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, which is now closed, but was dredged in the 1960s as a shortcut from the Gulf of Mexico to New Orleans. And it was never really used. There was a lot of prospecting about 
how there were going to be these big container ships that were going to be coming up and there was going to be all these jobs and all of this. And it ended up just being a, a total disaster because it allowed the salt water to come in. It, I think it, it's blamed for the destruction of 500,000 acres of wetlands here in this parish of St. Bernard. And so when Katrina came ashore, it was like a shotgun and just allowed all of this water to surge from the Gulf all the way up into New Orleans and actually is responsible for the levee breaks that happened in the Lower Ninth Ward. And and in my parish of St. Bernard, you know, the entire parish was flooded where I'm sitting right now on my family's land. We had 11 feet of water here. And we also had a huge oil spill that because we have two major refineries here, holding tanks were not properly secured prior to the storm. And one of the tanks floated off of its base and there were a million gallons of oil spilled into a residential community. And people just never heard that really. You know, I mean, I had a hard time getting that news myself when I was evacuated and worried about my family, who some of them had stayed. There's so much uncertainty and there are these band-aids that keep getting put up. And I think that the levees are flood protection, but in another respect, they call it the Chalmette Loop, which is a federal levy that was built after Katrina because the, the feds were like, oh yeah, it's our fault. They accepted the blame of contributing to this major flooding that happened after Katrina. And their levees just along the Mississippi River Gulf outlet, they just crumbled. They totally crumbled. And so they built this huge levee around us now. And and I know that they built that levee not so much to protect the people of St. Bernard Parish as much as it is to protect the city of New Orleans. We call it the Great Wall of St. Bernard because it's this, you know, 27 foot tall concrete wall that surrounds us. But the thing about the levee is that now they're saying that, and they just completed it, we heard them pounding sheet metal for months and months and months. And I want to say maybe they've, it's been completed now for about four years. And because our soil types are so erratic from foot to foot, it, and they say that this levee, which is a brand new federal levee, has sunk between three and six feet in such a short amount of time. So in one way, it's like, okay, yeah, I feel safe because I'm inside levy protection. But in another, when the feds are saying, oh, yeah, you have nothing to worry about. We just put in a million dollar system to monitor the levy. It's like, okay, you're not making me feel safe now. People are not able to afford flood insurance anymore, especially if you're outside levy protection. But, but the thing with being outside levy protection is that when the water comes in from the Gulf, it also is able to flow back out as soon as the surge goes out. But if you're inside levee protection and the surge comes in and there's a levee break, then it essentially fills up like a bull and wherever those breaks are, are the only way that the water can get back out. So the water just sits. So, you know, I have a lot of questions about what my future will look like if I remain in this territory, because I know that the land is sinking. I know that the wetlands are decaying. I know that climate change is real and that the water is rising. I know that I live surrounded by pipelines and refineries and 
hazardous material. So I have a lot of concerns. I mean, I also know that this is a beautiful, magical, vibrant place that I love dearly. So it's, it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to kind of say, you know, I'm going to turn my back and head north. And, you know, there's something about Louisiana and this part of Louisiana that, you know, I feel most in my skin here. This is my home. You know, this is my place and I want to defend it and protect it. But I also know that in my lifetime, this may not be an area where I'll be able to remain. So I think that raising your house 16, 17 feet in the sky is great, but (laughs) there are tornadoes that come with these violent storms and our storms are more frequent and stronger every year. Last fall in October, there was one of the largest hurricanes ever recorded, Patricia, which started in the Pacific and came across Mexico and ended up in the Gulf of Mexico. And it died down to just like a tropical depression by the time it got into the Gulf. But my cousins who live in Terrebonne and Lafourche Parish, that storm just sitting out in the Gulf brought three feet of water. It's kind of like you put your blinders on, you know, when the water comes in, you sweep it out and you try to just get back to whatever normal might mean. Same thing with the BP drilling disaster. We all watch the oil roll in. Our men get on fishing boats and go out with oil boom on their shrimping vessels. But as soon as the cleanup in big quotation marks was over, we just wanted to get back to our lives. BP came down and threw a bunch of money around and people got quiet really fast. So our coastal master plan is a $50 billion plan, but in reality, it's probably more like $200 billion. And the funding that we have right now to use towards rebuilding our barrier islands and also to start the engineering for these freshwater and sediment diversions is coming directly from BP fines. So there's this really weird relationship where now Not only is it the BP fines that we're dependent on for the restoration of our coast, there also is a Go Mesa Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act. And so we here in South Louisiana have a really bad deal compared to other states and their royalties. And because most of our oil and gas is being produced offshore and federal waters, it's even smaller percentage because it's not actually in state waters or on state land, even though all of the supply and the ports and the pipelines and everything are coming through our territory. But one of our senators, Mary Landrieu, fought really hard to make it so that we, we would get a larger percentage of these offshore royalties and that those monies would go directly into funding coastal restoration. So we're actually dependent on there continuing to be production of oil and gas in the Gulf of Mexico in order for us to restore our wetlands. So, you know, it's kind of makes you want to beat your head against the wall sometimes. But I think that we're on the front lines of this conversation about what the future of fossil fuels looks like. And also, we are so dependent on the oil and the gas industry for jobs. 
So even though my cousins who are all fishermen and outdoorsmen, hunters, they know what's happening to our coast and destruction of our coast better than anybody, but also they work as welders for the offshore oil and gas industry. So it's a little murky sometimes. And a lot of people are afraid of speaking out. Some of our NGOs and environmental groups are getting grant funding from these big oil and gas companies. It's very complicated. just tried to call in and I'm going to try to conference her in right okay. now. Hello? Hello, Sherry. Great. We got you. We're on air with Monique, who just gave us a pretty thorough primer on the complexities of being a frontline activist in the Gulf and how corporate politics has infiltrated all aspects of life, even the ecological restoration. One thing I'd love to hear more about is during the chaos of Katrina, we didn't hear much about the major oil spills on the land, in communities. So how fragile and vulnerable would you say the oil and gas infrastructure is, based on what you witnessed during Katrina? And secondly, are you still living with the oil from the BP disaster or the toxic dispersants? Monique probably handled the first question a little better, but the second question, I wasn't here for Katrina, I was here for all... Hurricanes that came afterwards, like Ike and Gustav. But um, for the second question, yeah, we definitely do still see oil, especially, you know, in the marshes and on the beaches. Anytime there's a real good storm, we'll have a lot of tar balls. The dispersant, if you think about putting dish soap in water and you, and you stir it all up, it's going to make bubbles, right? And that's what we saw, a lot of bubbles at the beginning. And then now you really can't see the dispersant itself. And that's also that's part of the part that makes it kind of scary is because what it does is it diffuses all of those chemicals, all that bad stuff in the oil and from the dispersant itself into the water column. So you can't really see it, but it's there, it's present. And, and then you think about what's eating that, you know, and living in it uh, consistently. And then the food that comes out of that, we consume ourselves. 
And what are the health effects that people are experiencing with the oil and with the dispersants? It's been interesting to watch this evolve. Like in the early parts of the spill, we had a lot of cleanup workers in particular, but also residents, especially small children, older people, and people with pre-existing conditions that had a lot of issues around breathing problems, a lot of skin lesions, neurological disorders, heart problems. Your heart would race real fast and then slow down. And then as things kind of evolved, we're, we're six years out now. As we saw things evolve, we saw some of those things kind of lessen. We had kids here who had their hair fall out. Most of their hair has fallen, come back, you know, and maybe the lesions, there's still skin problems, believe it or not. There's people here that I've seen that have had lesions come up and down for the last six years. But by and large, you know, the skin problems have sort of abated. But now what we're left with is a lot of neurological disorders, still some breathing issues because, of course, once your lungs are scarred, you're going to continue to have problems. And what we're really seeing I'm most concerned about is higher rates of cancer, especially near the Gulf and in cleanup workers. Hmm. And I want to talk about the no new leases that you both were a huge part of and organized for, because after the BP oil spill, I know there was a lot of discussion about will there be will there be drilling in the Gulf? Will there be a moratorium for years to come? You know, what is really going to be the outcome of this horrendous disaster? And if you could explain what you're fighting for with no new leases, what you were doing at the Superdome, and what is up for grabs right now? As of right now, they're auctioning off lease sales for 43 million acres in the Gulf. And the next five-year plan that the administration just released here a few weeks ago, that's another 47, I believe, million acres that'll be going up. And that pretty much will be all of what's left of the Gulf of Mexico besides what's already in moratorium, which is a little bit of area just west of Florida, and I think little parts of Texas as well. Basically, what I think they're doing is locking us into this fossil fuel economy. I call it fossil foolish for basically generations to come. You know, basically, as far as I'm concerned, the federal government is allowing the oil industry to take our federal waters and put that into a trust, sort of like a land trust for later use. Because, you know, with the oil prices the way they are, we have a lot of oil workers that are out of work right now, even though, like, there's plenty to do out there. We have 27,000 abandoned oil wells in the Gulf of Mexico that could be being cleaned up. You know, Taylor Energy's been leaking for more than a decade out there, you know. I mean, nobody's taking care of that. Uh, so we could have our oil workers out there cleaning things up and preparing for this new economy that we all know is coming. Everyone knows it's coming. But instead, they're sitting on land unfortunately collecting food stamps and wishing they could go out and make some kind of money somewhere with the economy the way it is. And the oil companies are still coming up with enough money to buy leases out there. And my major concern is this, what we had just talked about. You know, I just named off several things that happened during the BP disaster, right? Like not having good representation or having oil that still comes in six years later, or having our marsh and our wetlands die off so the hurricanes are closer to us, cause more damage, cause more flooding, the winds are, are stronger, puts more people in danger. And we could talk about refinery communities and the number of kids that are sick next to them. And we could talk about when they get finished with all that stuff and how they put that into injection wells or open waste pits like they do in Granville, Louisiana. After they do cleanup, they take it out to uh, Escambia County in Florida and dump it there amongst people of color, poor people in particular, you know. We can talk about all that. That's the effects of this industry. And what they're doing by selling those leases, as far as I'm concerned, is they're locking us to that. They're chaining us to this continuation that we see today of people who are sick, people who are oppressed, people who can't get past their state legislation. 
or the responsibility of the people who are supposed to represent us on the state level. I'm tired of it myself, and I'm not willing to put my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren tied to that system that doesn't care or work for them or even concern whether they live or die. Right. So you're speaking of this cycle of poverty and the environmental racism that is keeping especially people of color oppressed, sick, and like you said, tied to this system that will continually keep them down. Yeah, I mean, it's time to do something different. And we have those options available. I mean, go look at the Solutions Project. You look at innovation. What happens is here where I live in Louisiana, a lot of times is uh, we have these lobbyists that'll go on the stand. And they just last week had this big luncheon. And after they, well, I saw in the news that night, the governor, John Bell Edwards, said something like, you know, we're having a budget crisis here. And he had the nerve to say, well, we didn't go to the oil industry for any of the money that we subsidized to them because that's called being a good partner. Well, what about being a good partner to the future of this country, this state? What about being a good partner to my children's health? I'm ready for a new day when people or people that we elect are, are actually talking about being a good partner to the future of life on this planet, right? That oil industry is still putting its foot in the way of progress towards that end. You see, they're still sucking off of life, right? They're still sucking off of the human systems that we have. That's why when we talk about no new leases, we're always talking in almost an equal parts towards two things. And the first thing is shutting down this industry that gets in the way of our progress. And the second part is building for a just transition. As Monique just said, they're understanding quite well that they need to get off, get off fossil fuels and go to renewable energy in order to keep their systems going. They get that, right? But in order for that to happen, we have to build. They're not still benefiting off of that. We don't want them to come in with the solar power plant, take advantage of people somewhere else, and then get rich off of us putting solar panels on. No, we want something very, we want systems change, right? We want, in the renewable sector, we want that to come back to the people and to help support the people, especially in one of the most impoverished areas of the United States, which is where the Gulf is. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really important differentiation to make. The new green economy isn't just to replace the oil economy so that the same people are in power, enslaving and, like you said, sucking off the natural systems, the human systems and so forth. It's the system change along with how we're getting our energy. And I was wondering, you know, Monique, I know from watching your documentary that you have deep roots in Louisiana and seeing your grandma and it was just amazing to watch her resilience and her skill set. And I'm wondering, having so much family in Louisiana and being a part of the United Homa Nation, how are people in that community responding to what's happening with the oil, what could potentially happen with these newer technologies? And does the Homa Nation have any power? Do they have any land rights to stand up against this? Unfortunately, we've been silenced and oppressed for a very long time and told that this is as good as it gets. So my cousins are happy to just have jobs because the mindset is, is that if we don't have oil and gas, then we have nothing. People are afraid to speak out. We feel like we've been put in a corner. Hopefully things will start changing. 
I mean, I think there are many people out there who want something better. It's just believing that we deserve it and really working towards it and challenging the old structure and system. But at present, there's not a whole lot of momentum there. People are really wanting to kind of live in this denial of what's happening, but also witnessing rapid change. We hear about South Louisiana as ground zero for climate change in the United States. I read South Louisiana loses a football field of wetlands an hour to sea level rise and salt water intruding through man-made canals. One island, Ile de Jean Charles, has received a lot of attention since they got a federal grant to relocate all the island's residents. A generation ago, it was covered in abundant tropical mangroves, while today it's lost 98% of its acreage. Can you speak about that? So where my grandparents are from is a place called Ponoshin, which ironically means point of the oaks, and all of the oaks there are dying or have died already. So we have these ghost forests across our coastline. And Ile de Jean Charles is just a mile, two miles from Ponoshin, which is actually more densely populated. And they're not in this federal grant that has been allocated now to the island. Where they're planning on moving the community, it's not that far north, honestly. But, you know, when you take coastal people who are tied to the water, who, you know, have this very close-knit community that's been there for generations and generations, and then you move them further north, you know, their entire way of life changes. And I mean, that's already been happening. The Great Migration has begun. So what is the band of Ile de Jean Charles if they're not living on the island? And how we stay connected to our culture is very much so connected to us being in our land and in our waters. Yeah, BP came in and destroyed it and then laid workers off six years later. Now these people that worked for, worked for BP at that point are now out of work and they can't sustain themselves off the land that BP destroyed. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah, about that. I, I just want to tell you a story. Like Every year for the last maybe four years, I've been going down to Ile de Jean Charles around Christmas time and taking Christmas gifts that we collect through a, a group that we have here. And uh, there's this little boy I met down there, and I'm sorry, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. But he's a real sweet kid. I met him first, maybe 10 or 11, hopping around, happy little guy, you know. And he's with the Ile de Jean band. And all he talked about constantly is fishing, 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 fishing. That's all that kid wanted to do. And then the last time I went down there, he was about 13 years old. And his family had brought him there because they had actually moved off the island and moved up into the town of Homa. And um, he was just not the same kid. I mean, he was just like a shell, really, and kind of quiet. And I realized 13 is the time you're going through adolescence. But everybody said at the same time, like, it broke his heart to leave that island because he had been there his whole life. All he did, he woke up in the morning and go fishing. That's what he did, you know. And somebody made the mistake of donating just for him a brand new fishing pole. It was a nice pole. Like, I knew he was going to love it. And I gave it to him, and he did love it for about 15 seconds. He lit up and then went dim again and handed it back to us. He wouldn't take the fishing pole. He said he had nowhere to fish. That devastated me. That this young man is so separate now, not just from what he loved, what made him who he was, 
But also the culture, his uncle still lives on that island. His uncle said he will die on that island. He will not leave again. So this young man, at the time in his life when he's becoming a man, is now disconnected from the culture and the people that would have supported that, that would have supported him traditionally through thousands of years in this place. So it's devastating. And it goes right to the heart of who we are as indigenous peoples. You know, these are people that were pushed during colonization to the very end of the earth. And then those very safe systems that pushed them created a world that made the water come and take the earth from their feet. It's disgusting. It's beyond injustice. It's genocidal. Sherry, there was an article that recently came out in the New York Times about a lawsuit filed against you by the company Chemrisk where in a strange twist, they are fighting to drop the suit, and you're fighting to be sued. Is that right? During the BP spill, we had a lot of people getting sick, especially our cleanup workers. Now, Louisiana Environmental Action Network had provided themselves, went into their own pocket, and provided respirators for these cleanup workers because they knew the effects of oil on people's lungs. That's oil without dispersant. We didn't know about dispersant at that time. And... Um, BP's contractors told the workers that if they wore those, they would be fired. And so they didn't because at that point, mostly fisher folk were working in that and there was no fish, right? So there was no way they could go fishing or shrimp. And so this was going to be their only means for the season. And um, we uncovered that there was a certain study that was done by a group called Chemrisk, which is now since then, now it's become Cardinal Chemrisk. And they had said that the pollutants that were in the air weren't enough to make the workers sick. Well, we know that wasn't true because the workers got sick. And I was there. I got sick myself. I know that it was, it's a real thing. And so when they did that, they put out the study saying that the workers didn't get sick. By the way, the samples for the study itself was collected by BP and then sent to Chemrisk. Then they put out a study saying, hey, everything was okay. Then BP's PR picked up that study and they put it all over the nation and all over the globe saying that the workers that were sick out there were just having heat problems, that everything was okay, they weren't getting sick because of the chemicals, which everyone who lived here and was close to them knew that just wasn't true. So we just wrote a simple story about that in the Huffington Post Green. <laughs> it was read by, I can't remember, maybe 40 people back in 2013. Well, immediately, Kim Risks, um, the person that used to work for the public company, Got back to them, the one that publicized it, got back to us and said they were going to sue us. Well, we said, well, there's I mean, we're, the article's legit. I mean, we had done like a year, maybe two's worth of research by that time. We knew it was good to go. And uh, Huffington Post stood behind us and said they refused to take it down, but that any responsibility for being sued would be on myself and my co-author, which was Karen Savage. They wanted $25,000 plus 
So depending on what the judge decided for damages, they said that we defamed the company by stating the obvious. And so that's been going on for years now. <laughs> it's like just been in litigation and out of litigation. Finally, we gave them an opportunity to back out of it, but they refused. They wanted to keep pushing things forward. We always felt like it was a slap suit. We always felt like they were trying to keep us so busy that uh, we wouldn't be able to continue to do the work that we were doing against BP. And we lost our chance to throw it out. We got to the discovery phase, so we decided, well, after we had looked at this guy, Postenbach, a little bit more, we realized that he also had said that some other pretty yucky chemicals were actually okay, too. And so we thought, well, if we had this opportunity, since they weren't going to drop it, maybe we'd look into all those chemicals and do a little research ourselves, and maybe we'd ask some questions about all, not just now, not just BP, but all these years back, all this time that these people have been, in my opinion, working for industry, in my opinion, putting out whatever the industry wanted, and in my opinion, causing murder, the murder or the death of probably millions of people, in my opinion. So what happened was we gave them this discovery with all these, I think there's like 60 some odd questions on there that we asked about everything from asbestos to the BP chemicals they used out there, Corexit. Come to find out, you know, they wanted to drop that lawsuit the very next day. They were, <laughs> they were done with this. They said it would cost them too much to answer the questions. It would be too time consuming. But what it was is they don't want to answer those questions. So what we did is we filed something saying, no, <laughs> you can't. We're not going to let you drop the lawsuit. You're going to answer the questions. Or you can write us a formal apology in the Huffington Post. And, you know, you can pay for our lawyers. And then maybe we'll talk about it. But, they, of course, they're going to refuse to do that. So here we are now fighting to continue to be sued. And they're fighting to drop the suit that they brought against us in the first place, which is a twist that's so funny. I don't know how to deal with it. We have some great pro bono lawyers that have been helping us out. Just really wonderful. I, don't, I wouldn't know what to do without them. But I don't know what's going to end up happening. But honestly, like, I'm not going to drop this until I get the discovery and find out what these people have been doing for all these years regarding all these chemicals that are supposedly safe. But then decades later, we know they're not. How can we support you, both of you? How can the people who are listening to this show, well, you know, what are some things that they can do to stand in solidarity with you both? I think one of the biggest ways that people can stand in solidarity with us right now is the 2017 to 2022. It's a five-year plan for offshore leasing in the Gulf and the Arctic. And there's a public comment period that is coming open. There's public hearings that are happening along the Gulf Coast as well as in the Arctic and it's a really simple process. You know, you can go online even and make a comment to say that we want to keep it in the ground and we do not want to gamble with our future, continuing to mine fossil fuels, no new leases. That's a huge way that people can help. And if they can get to public meetings, that's even better. I would say that we really need to support coastal peoples everywhere and understand the indigenous knowledge that's out there, listen to our elders, and really stand in solidarity to protect the systems of Mother Earth, you know. I would like to say to, if anyone can hear me and it gets this message, to any peoples living in the Arctic, I just want you to know that the Gulf stands with you, and that whatever our messaging is down here, we're going to make sure to lift up the Arctic as well, because it's time for oil drilling to go the way of the dinosaur, I guess. And I think that 
there's so few of us at this point we're standing in right now. We have to really stand together and stand strong in solidarity with each other. So I just want the people of the Arctic, whoever you are, to know that the people of the Gulf are with you, standing strong with you in creating change for ourselves and for our future. I think we have a lot in common. Both uh, fishing communities both live off the land quite a bit. And uh, we were all here first. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I guess that's the number one thing, man. It's just if you see something like, you know, on social media or something, please share that. If it's a thing for public comments, please put in your comments because we have to make sure we go through the proper channels so that uh, we can say that we went through the proper channels as we shut this stuff down. And if you can get to a hearing, just go make your voices heard. But also, you know, make sure your neighbor understands it, too. Like, you know, talk within your communities and especially to our youth. And they really need to know I'm not going to be here forever and Honestly, I don't even know, like, there's a lot of threats and stuff that happens for anybody that does this kind of work down here in the Gulf. So it's going to be up to my kids and my grandkids, I'm afraid, to really drive it home and put us where we need to be. So that's what's going to happen. But I will tell you this, you know, with my dying breath, I'll uh, protect their life. That's what a mother's supposed to do. And for me, this fight against new leases in the Gulf of Mexico is nothing less than protecting my children. It's my whole heart. Wow, thank you. And on a more local level to Louisiana and, and the coast, I'm wondering what other organizations or projects you support. I know there's people that are protecting the basin and reforestation efforts. We had talked about a little bit, restoration of the wetlands, people that you know of or people that you're working with that need support, whether that's hands, whether that's financial help to support the restoration efforts. Oh my goodness, yes. We have so many community organizations and environmental justice communities down here in the Gulf of Mexico that need support. You know, sometimes it pains me to think about it, but all those big green organizations who I appreciate when they're helpful came down here and made so much money during the oil spill, like putting stuff out there and saying like, send $5 a day so we can stop offshore drilling. And just a handful of those at this point don't even support us as we continue to fight that. We have many, many who do. We have a lot of great big national organizations that do. But the money and the resources never seems to get or very rarely seems to get down to the people who are actually suffering from this. And I mean refinery communities. So if you support Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services, Tejas, if you support Louisiana Bucket Brigade that works directly with those groups, Louisiana Environmental Action Network, I'm trying to think. Help me out, Monique. There's so many good organizations uh, down here that do so much good stuff on such a small amount of money. Or just uplifting their stories. Yeah, the Gulf Restoration Network, you know, they do a lot of policy work. There's the Gulf Future Coalition, which is an amazing group of community folks. And I'm sure I'm forgetting oh, a number Coal of other. The Mississippi Coalition of Vietnamese American Fisher Folk and Family. That's a good one. They're on Facebook. And then we have like all these like Wedgwood, uh, Pensacola. All these environmental justice communities, any community in Cancer Alley, Tejas, Texas, all the whole border of Texas is basically refinery or chemical plants and all those. Look, Port Arthur, Texas, Hilton Kelly's group. Monique, can you tell, I would really like to get some of the work that you do in there too. What about, like, probably you want in the seeds bank? Can you tell me anything about oh, that? Oh, yeah. Doing, as Sheree was saying, like to do this environmental work here in the Gulf, it's really challenging and I've 
found that working through the arts helps to open up the conversation more. So there's an organization, if people are, or a project really, called Cry You One. So Cry, C-R-Y-U-Y-O-U-1, which comes from an old Cajun saying that musicians would say, instead of saying, let me play you song, they would say, let me cry you one. And there's a great multimedia platform. It's just cryyouone.com. And there's a lot of community members here in the Delta telling their individual stories. And then there's a performance piece that goes along with it that has been traveling around as well to help raise awareness of what's happening here in the wetlands. I also have a project called the Land Memory Bank and Seed Exchange, which is trying to create a community record. So instead of having anthropologists or historians come in from the outside to tell our story, which we've been under the microscope for a long time, especially, you know, post Katrina and BP. So instead of other people coming down to tell our stories, how do people of the Delta tell their own stories for themselves? So, so there's that. And then we're also collecting and propagating native seeds that are for medicinal purposes and as well as restoration work. So, mm. yep. I would just like to end on whatever note either of you would like to end on, as well as maybe just share whether that's a memory or an ecosystem or plants or whatever it is that reminds us how special this land is and why we're fighting for this, why the both of you are standing so tall and courageous in this fight because it's something that is magical and worth our love and care. After Katrina, when I came home to St. Bernard and we drove past the major oil spill and residential community and I came to my grandmother's house and it was in shambles and everything was kind of turned upside down and we all looked around and thought, wow we're not going to ever be able to live here again. And then the spring came just as it's springtime right now here in Louisiana and all the vibrant green from the cypress started to show their leaves. And then I realized, you know, mother nature has this incredible ability to restore itself if we just allow it to do what it's supposed to do and to respect that natural system and it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, that the Mississippi River Delta, which is my home, is a power point for the planet. And, you know, what's happening here in the Gulf? So say the Arctic gets taken off the table for offshore drilling. If we keep drilling here in the Gulf of Mexico, those Arctic communities are still going to be affected by our offshore drilling here. And to recognize how we are interconnected and how the health of my community is important for the health of your community, no matter where you are. And the rooster crowed. <laughs> you guys heard that. He agrees. He really agrees. <laughs> well, thank you, Monique and Sheree. So I've been thinking about for a long time is how we bring in and ask and invite like the natural world into these struggles. Like they're already at the front of it. If you think about it, like who suffers the most from these just bad practices, right? Or these bad ideas and bad systems, right? And yes, people suffer for sure, but, but also like the endangered species, the species that we have that are going extinct at unprecedented rates, 
we had said down in Florida, they were trying to put at one point a walking trail through the middle of the Everglades for some asinine reason. I was talking to Bobby Billy down there and I said, what you ought to do is tell them if they want nature, you know, get about 30 alligators, ask them to come into your boat and they tell the people at the state house if they want nature so much, you can have it. But kind of there's this bigger question too. That was a joke, but it's kind of a bigger <laughs> question too of, <laughs> of making sure that we be like really intentional about this struggle and really have a deeper, larger understanding of the natural rights of the earth to exist and of everything that depends on her. In order to uh, create this new system, I think we're going to have to take all, and this something that's in balance, we need to take that all into consideration ourselves. And so there, to me, like there's just nothing more beautiful than being out in the basin when the sun comes up or being out in the Gulf when the sun goes down. There's nothing more beautiful than watching dolphins dancing. And there's nothing more beautiful than watching alligators roll around and lay on the beach for hours on end, barely moving, like prehistoric times, right? All those things, that that's a part of who we all are as people, like not just one group, but but that's our collective source. All of those things, the Mississippi River, all of that is our collective source as humans, on this particular spaceship, <laughs> you know, this unique and wonderful and beautiful planet. And so I guess when you talk about coming from that particular place, like it's definitely about the future generations, but it's about the future generations of all living things on this earth, not just the human ones, not just the ones that walk on two legs, but everybody. And we have to start thinking about that what that unity and what that solidarity really looks like. I mean, the first time I met you was in Paris. <laughs> you went a whole continent away to fight for this, and that's, that's important. So anyway, I love you all. Thanks so much, and always good to talk to Monique, who's just a, a pistol, man. She's <laughs> She got him on the run, and but she comes from a, from a really, really good, sweet, honest, genuine place, and that's very important, I think. Mm-hmm. So well, thank good. you, Shree, because you're contagious. <laughs> we started a fire. We know it. <laughs> You've been hearing from Monique Verdan and Cherie Foytland today on Unlearn and Rewild. I'm Ayana Young. Our producer is March Young. The music you heard was Sinner Man by Nina Simone, Marie Laveau, by David and Rosaline, and Le Temps Après Fini by The Lost Bayou Ramblers, and Like a River by Kate Wolf. Visit Unlearn and Rewild to sign up for the Mobilized Newswire, and please donate to this fully volunteer programming. <laughs>